You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I think I'm excited about this upcoming podcast. I actually got extremely excited about it once we got into it, but I was nervous beforehand. So a few years ago, Stephen Dubner, the author of Freakonomics, and I, we did a podcast for about a year, year and a half called Question of the Day, where we would just make up questions during the podcast and ask each other. And the podcast were about 20 minutes an episode. It was a fun podcast, but we eventually stopped it. Now, Stephen and one of my favorite nonfiction writers, Angela Duckworth, who's the author of Grit, I highly recommend the book, they started a podcast, No Stupid Questions. And so I kind of felt like they were referring to me, that I had asked stupid questions, but they were going to do a podcast that where no stupid questions were allowed. But as I listened to the podcast myself, I listened to every single episode, it was an amazing podcast. They asked questions like, did COVID-19 kill the handshake? Or why uh, do people start being less happy after the age of 16? Does all creativity come from pain? Or what do Tom Sawyer and the founder of Duolingo have in common? So many question after question, really smart questions, and then they prepared in advance, so they did research and they studied and they have really fascinating answers. I learned from every single episode, every single question. So I asked them to come in the podcast. Let's talk about no stupid questions. And let me ask them specifically about the episodes, their questions, and their answers. They were very generous in providing answers. Here we go. Here's the podcast about no stupid questions. And I highly recommend their podcast. So excited for two reasons for this podcast. One is my old friend, Stephen Dubner, co-author of Freakonomics, also has a great Freakonomics podcast, which I've been on, uh, is back on the podcast for the 20th time or so. And also Stephen and I did a podcast, hundreds of episodes of uh, a long time ago called Question of the Day. But also, Stephen, no offense, but I'm even more excited for the first time to meet one of my favorite writers, Angelo Duckworth, author of Grit, uh, a great book. I, I, and Angelo, welcome to the show. I'm not even letting Stephen say welcome first. Angelo, welcome to the <laughs> Just show. Just me. Okay. Thank you so much. That's really kind. I'm really excited to talk to James. You know, when I read Grit, and I just want to summarize that in a second, or have you summarize it. But when I read Grit, correct me if I'm wrong, I almost felt like it was like this great sequel to Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I don't know if you thought of it that way, but that's the way I thought about it. Well, okay, Carol Dweck is quite literally my hero. Um, and I can tell so, from the book. 
I mean, yeah, it was a little bit of an homage to Carol Dweck. And yeah, I mean, they're definitely related. So Carol's work on mindset is about beliefs that you walk around with, like little theories of, of how the world works or your mind works um, that can influence um, everything you do. Like if you believe that intelligence is fixed or if you believe it can grow. And then relatedly, if you do believe that your abilities can grow, you're more likely to be gritty. And grit is is what I wrote about, you know, the tendency to pursue really long long-term goals, uh, and to do so with passion and perseverance. Yeah, and, and resilience and uh, kind of a certain conscientiousness and optimism and so on about your work. And it's really impressive. And bringing the knowledge you have from Grit and bringing in Stephen's knowledge of Freakonomics, you guys have recently started an excellent podcast among the other 2 million podcasts out there, but I highly recommend people listen <laughs> to this one because it's just genius, but it's called no stupid questions. And I think the title of your podcast is related to, to the fact that Steven and I, when we were doing question of the day, we're constantly asking stupid questions. Yeah, so no stupid like, questions were allowed. <laughs> and, 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 and you're, you, Steven and I would ask each other stupid questions. Like I have to admit your questions that you guys are asking are just fascinating and brilliant and I'm loving it. Uh, uh, and I kind of want to just ask you guys the questions you ask each other and no stupid questions, but maybe let's start off with what was kind of the foundation for this? Like, how did you decide to do this? And then just for the people listening, I'm going to ask you some of the questions you've been asking each other and we'll, we'll talk about them and do like almost mini summaries of some of these earlier episodes. I think you should tell this story, Stephen. I don't know if I'm allowed to speak yet because James had said been given how permission. excited he was to speak with you. And no, no. Stephen, <laughs> welcome to the James Althusser Show for the eighth time. Thank you, James. So happy to have you on and, and so happy to see you. We, we usually get together all the time and now I haven't seen you in three months. So good to see you remotely. I know, I know. We, we used to, Angie, I don't know if you know, but James and I have a long-standing backgammon game in person Oh, yeah. I think you guys talked about it once on your... We started in 2002, I think, or 2003. I think that's right, 2002. We started playing in 2002, mm -hmm. and then in 2003, we started the match, yeah. which is still so, ongoing. Ongoing. So, James, I miss you. I miss those games, and I'm looking forward to resuming someday. So, No Stupid Questions, our new podcast. Yeah, it's definitely, I would say, in the way that grit is to... Okay, so if this were an SAT question and you want to get the right answer, grit is to mindset or carol dweck as no stupid questions is to question of the day the just the show that you and i did james well but no stupid questions implies an insult a little bit so it's not quite an analogy but but i'll i'll roll with it well i don't know that shouldn't be i mean in her case it's an homage so uh so <laughs> just a little more in it but yes it is you know an homage. so That's with true. question of the day i think we started doing mostly core questions that we both yes. liked and yeah. um i mean i love it's Cora a different I still love Cora. Um, but with Angie, what happened is, you know, James, you and I did that show, I think for a year even, and it was great. I felt that, you know, I think we both felt like it kind of, you know, it had a sort of ran its course a little bit and that I know I was starting to give the same answers to the questions a lot of time. Oh, oh just to tell one quick story. There was one time um, I asked you a question. We would come up with these questions on the fly and you guys are clearly preparing questions way in advance and doing a lot of preparation. So that's the main format difference. I think your podcast, which we'll get into kind of the content of in a second, your podcast is much more prepared, much more informative, much more intellectually challenging. So no question about it. But there was one time I was asking Stephen a question 
And Nathan, the audio engineer, would say, oh, James, you asked that question already. And so I would ask another question, and he'd say, ugh, James, you asked that question. I had 12 questions in a row that I asked that I had already asked. Wait, you guys are just getting old. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Stephen, where'd you meet her? (laughs) So no stupid questions, I would say, is really kind of a hybrid of question of the day and Freakonomics Radio in that, you know, James, with question of the day, often the questions were, I mean, I loved learning from you a lot of business stuff and investing stuff and startup stuff that I never did with Freakonomics Radio. With no stupid questions, there's a little bit more of an overlap with Freakonomics Radio in that it gets into the social sciences more. But really, it's the same idea, which is that two people who are really interested in a lot of stuff asking questions that they've thought about a little bit beforehand and then coming prepared to give some answers. Yeah. Right. Like I think, A, the questions are... Well, we'll 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 see. Let's let's get right into it because you'll see how how you guys have prepared and and the like quality of the questions. It's it, it wouldn't be just like how do you improve your life in ten minutes or less? Eat a quesadilla. It's really sophisticated questions. Is that what you're eating, Stephen? Anya made me a quesadilla. Oh, you know, teenagers so can be useful. Your kids are so good to you. Mine don't make Lucy me. Brought me breakfast today. Wow. I mean, I asked, but I uh, think it still counts. Yeah. Like yeah. So, so I'll, I'll start with one of the questions. I'm going to pick some of these at random, and I have some, some notes and things I want to ask you. So do you want us to give the same questions, the same answers we gave on the show? No, let's just discuss Because I'm not going to remember a thing that we no, said. No, no, that's, that's okay. I think the interesting thing is, and by the way, I'll give the answers that you gave on the show, plus some of the research papers you refer to and so on. Oh, but, perfect. Um, but let's just talk about them, because I think the interesting thing is the questions and how you attack them, not necessarily people mm, could listen to the meta. podcast for your answers. So- I love this question. What do Tom Sawyer and the founder of Duolingo have in common? That's such an interesting question because there is no way. I thought about that. (laughs) I could not connect the dots at all. The closest I came was that, you know, he uses this manipulative technique. I mean, before I listened and paid attention and, and, and referred to all your sources, the closest I thought was he uses his manipulative technique to get his friends to help him paint his fence and Duolingo, the founder is, you know, uses a CAPTCHA, is CAPTCHA sort of manipulative in a slight way to really solve multiple problems at the same time. Well, you got it though. That's yeah, it. What are you what talking are you, about? What are you downreading yourself? That's like an A plus answer. Yeah, that's exactly She's the right. Professor. I don't even I'm, believe you. Did you really, did if you figured that out before then, cause I was like, Tom Sawyer, I couldn't remember anything about it. Well, I know a lot about. I know I I went to graduate school with Manuel Blum and the I oh I, I forgot you know, who, who the captcha guy yeah uh, this is worked, your domain he was, he was just a year ahead of me in graduate school. Did you know him? This was at yeah, CMU, yeah. right? Carnegie yeah, Mellon. I knew, I knew him. He may or may not remember me. And this was twenty three years ago, twenty two years ago. But he's a very very good guy. Do you know Luis Fanon? I did not know him. No. Okay. He he was there not after yet. I left, or I didn't know him somehow. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, and, and I was just, I, I was very intrigued. So uh, maybe describe, like, how did you come up with that question? And maybe, um, you know, you could, we could talk a little about CAPTCHA. And- yeah, so Luis Fanon um, was our first guest. Usually No Stupid Questions just has the two of us, Angela and I, asking each other one question per episode. Uh, or often two questions per episode. Yeah, we each ask one. We each ask the other person one question per half of the episode. So one times two equals two. And... Um, 
And so Luis was our first guest, which was suggested by Angela, who thought he'd be a good guest. And I didn't know much about him. I didn't know a ton about Duolingo or CAPTCHA. So anyway, um, you know, you do your regular research. And I was just really intrigued by this version of, I guess you'd call it crowdsourcing, right? Where Luis got people to enter CAPTCHAs for their own purposes which was also serving a different purpose, which was decoding essentially language for Google Books, for the New York Times and so on. So CAPTCHA is whenever you are logging in and they want to prove you're not a robot and it says, type this in, and it shows you these crazy letters uh, and you have to type it in because a, a robot probably can't do the visual recognition of what these letters are. That's the theory. And he took these images of these letters from maybe old documents like newspapers or even handwritten documents at the same time that he's proving you're not a robot for the website you're doing the captcha for he's also creating a database decrypting yeah he's basically decoding texts that right. needed to be decoded anyway that a computer couldn't do when i was thinking about asking the question i was a little bit concerned he'd be pissed especially cuz angela had brought him so she was really he was really her guest and I didn't want it to sound like he was scamming people, but the fact is, as you said, James, Tom Sawyer persuaded his friends that whitewashing the fence was an awesome thing to do and that they should actually pay him for the privilege of it. And so Luis, I think very cleverly, had work that he needed to get done and he was able to um, turn this workforce into um, a dual purpose. But I think that it just shows how clever he is as a computer scientist. It's not about a business manipulation. Yeah, it was. It's not a business manipulation at all. Like Tom Sawyer was directly conning his friends <laughs> into you're using reverse psychology to con his friends. That is true. Yes, but let's look at their utility. Like they were willing to surrender. Like one kid gave up a dead rat on a string that Tom could swing around. Like for them, the experience of whitewashing a fence for an hour was worth giving up that material goods. But Stephen, there, there is a, there is a, you know, look, you can, by the way, you can justify any scam by that logic, right? Like, well, it looks like people were pretty happy <laughs> buying this empty box. That man wanted to be dead right before I killed him. But, but there's, a, but there's an actual transaction happening here. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. Angela, but there's a transaction, which is that, you know, because there was this ulterior motive he didn't have to charge the websites for putting the capture there. So it kind of, you know, so the customer of the website doesn't have to incur those costs. So it's actually a benefit to the customer. Well, and there's a little question mark, right? Where, uh, I mean, literally a little, you know, you can you could, you could actually find out why you were entering the captures. So it wasn't really deceptive in the way that, you know, Tom oh, Sawyer know didn't also provide a flyer that said, actually, I'm secretly asking <laughs> you to, you know, do my chores. No, but if those guys had had any sense at all, they would have known that Aunt Polly was the one who made him whitewash the fence. <laughs> they weren't thinking. Here's why it was not that believable, the whitewashing the fence idea, is because whitewashing a fence is something that ha happens every year. So it's not like a one-time opportunity to deceive everybody. Oh, you wouldn't have scarcity. You right. or, or, yeah. Well, it's not just it's, scarcity. Or just it wouldn't work every day. It's experience. It, it's like, why is buying a house so nerve-wracking for so many people? A, it's a lot of money, but B, you only you do, do it, it once or twice. Right. And it's, a, and it's a bad financial deal for just about 99% uh, of the population. But that's another story. Oh, I didn't know that. We can pick that up some no, no, Another issue. And then, you know, also, you know, this guy, Luis, uh, started... Duolingo. I've never used it, but it's funny. I was thinking just the other day, I maybe would like to learn another language. And then Stephen, I'm surprised to hear you say that um, 
in general, you think if you're English speaking American, you really it's really useless to learn another language. Well, I wouldn't say useless, but the the economic literature at least says that the ROI for a native English speaker living in an English speaking country, there's very little ROI um, from an income perspective, long li- lifetime income perspective of learning a second language. I don't think most people learn another language to increase their um, economic, you know. That is that is totally true. But the point is that learning a second language in a foreign country. I mean, if you live in a non-US country, yeah. yeah. If you live in a non-English speaking country and you learn English, it's a massive boost to your personal ROI. Right. That's all. So so this doesn't invalidate the argument that learning a second language is really great for you on some dimensions. It might broaden your world. It might be good for your brain. It might lead you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. But in terms of the investment, English is the language to learn if you come from a non-English speaking country. And just real quickly, do you think Duolingo works? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I I don't think there's been a randomized control trial, but it is, um, you know, while you're in this language platform, it's it's like the assessment of your language ability is constantly going on, right? It's like you're, you're interacting with it. And yeah, people do improve. I remember reading some stories about people who like went all the way to the end. I mean, most people sort of, you know, at some point before Duolingo runs out or, you know, just like they run out, right? So they don't finish every module. But but um, there have been people who finish the whole thing for whatever language. And yeah, I, I don't know if they're fluent, but they they certainly are a lot better off. And I, I do think they can, you know, get along, right? Read, converse uh, in basic ways. All right. I'll have to try it. So I want to go to question two of this episode, which is, I think it's also a fascinating question. All, all the questions were fascinating. That's why I, I love this new podcast you guys are doing. Um, the question two on this episode is, is it really worth it to publish millions of scientific research articles every year? My own personal answer would be no. And, <laughs> and you guys, you know, check, there's 3 million scientific articles produced a year and they're all really poorly written. So I don't <laughs> hey, know. And hey, I, not all two or three of, of those are Angie's. Be careful. Yeah. yeah no. Okay. She, but she's a writer. Okay. There's like out of those 3 million papers, maybe 12 of them wrote best-selling books. So, you know, that's an exception. You know, maybe they shouldn't be written, actually. I have a, I have a colleague named Sidney DeMello, and um, one of his, he's a, he's a scientist, he's a computer scientist and a psychologist, and he wonders whether they should be essays, which is what they are, right? There's like an introduction and then there's, you know, results and then there's a discussion and that's a lot of writing. And to be a great scientist doesn't guarantee that you're a great writer or vice versa. So maybe we shouldn't be writing essays. Maybe we should just be reporting the results and in the most parsimonious way, just saying what the facts are. I am so in favor of that as someone who, as as a non-academic, who's now read, you know, thousands of academic papers, I can't tell you how much I feel like the problem of most papers is a result of it trying to be written. Like a story. Where I'm, all I want to do is hack away all the bad writing and get to the numbers or the theory or the, you know, Mostly whatever the numbers, right? Mostly just the result if it's, if it's an empirical study. Yeah, it depends, what, it depends what, you know. But I mean, look, I read papers in, you know, political science. It, it's not always just pure data you're looking for. You're looking for an idea Right. And you're look okay. Let's call it evidence. The evidence right. might be in number form. It might be in anecdotal form. It might be whatever. But the fact is, is that what most of us want, we see the title of a paper, we see the the idea of it, and we think either that's interesting or that's not. I'm going to read it. Usually not. 
Then when it's interesting, it's an interesting question or idea or research agenda. And then what we want to know is, okay, is it real? Yeah, How do you know it's true? true? What's the I evidence? Know? What's the ma- is it is it a one time shot or whatever? And and we and we lay people are not encouraged by you academics to be able to do that, right? Like you like when you read an academic paper, maybe you read the the abstract and the conclusion. Okay, here's a question we're pursuing. Here's what we found. But you can't. It's impossible for that layman or or me to read all the math and follow it and understand it. Like it's almost like. Here's here's my solution for it. Do you know what the Fisher Kincaid score is? The FK score? No, I don't. Is that the uh, readability, like seventh grade reading level? Oh, yeah, it tells level? if you have an FK score of seven, your your article is at a seventh grade reading level. Right. So, Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway is a four. It's at a fourth grade <laughs> reading level, which is was good enough to win the Nobel Prize in literature. And uh, uh, but I put in the. I'll I'll put in academic papers. I'll leave out the math even. I'll just put in like the abstract into there's various Fisher-Kincaid calculators on the web. And I'll put in just the abstracts of academic papers. It'll come back like a 15. So just so you know, like like readability goes away after seven or eight. Like Thomas Pynchon is at seven. Is Fisher-Kincaid, I thought it was Flesh-Kincaid. Are these the same thing or is there something um, Fisher-Kincaid? I thought that was Fisher-Kincaid. Maybe I'm wrong. I may just be... It's it's usually referred to as the FK score, so maybe I don't really, really know. That's why we need fact checkers. But look, part of the reason why that that score is inflated is because I know, um, I didn't know that term, but I know about you know, like the way these things work. And um, it's because the vocabulary is rare, right? But that's just because like in every industry and science is one of them, there are terms of art, right? There there are special um, vocabulary words. In your defense, in defense of the community of scientists, it makes sense for you guys. And they're not written for us. I mean, that's the point is they're written for a community. Yeah, I didn't really care too much about what Jay... (laughs) Like I, I actually think there's another problem, right? So separate from readability, which you could you could certainly have gripes about them not being written in lucid, straightforward terms, which is not easy. It's always um, harder to write simply. But but I actually had a separate problem, which is that when I do a scientific um, study, you know, there's a lot of energy that goes into the design of the study and the collection of the data, and then there is a massive amount of energy in crafting this essay, this article that you submit, I mean, it could take years. And I don't think that's a very efficient process. And by the way, maybe unfairly, I get my article in to a journal because it is well crafted in terms of its prose, but maybe the evidence isn't as good as somebody else who doesn't write as well. How often do you think that happens that good writing gets privileged over good data? You know, my my suspicion is that it happens a lot, right? Because I also review articles, and when I am reading something that's just like horribly written, it's like it's too much energy for me to have to like parse what the, you know, and also I kind of know that there's no way this article is going to get accepted because, you know, the other two reviewers aren't going to hack their way through it, and nobody's going to read it if they have to hack their way through it. So it's an unfortunate you know, feature of the system. So an alternative would be maybe more, um, I don't know how much you guys read medical school scientific articles, but, um, or I should say scientific articles in medicine. Um, They have a very standard format often. It's like background and there's two sentences and then it's, right? Yeah, and they also often say like, what what's new, what this paper is bringing that's new, which I find incredibly, I've been reading a lot, obviously a lot of people have during COVID, 
And it's great. It's like what this study sets out to accomplish. What we found. Right. What we found, what our confidence interval is, blah, 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 blah. And what's new that's actually worth knowing, which is really, it's a nice format. I, I agree. I almost, so if I were to have an opinion on this, uh, I almost think there should be two versions of the paper. One is the one that's published in the academic journal. Yeah, the other is the Freakonomics Radio podcast. So listen. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. Or, or, or the one where like the FK score is limited to seven and they have, because, you know. Yeah, but just don't, what I don't want you to do, James, is encourage people to make their academic papers more understandable because I have no job then, literally. I appreciate that. And so I will, no, nobody's hearing this except us three, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Jay, the audio engineer. But Angela, to your point that, you know, it's written for a certain audience of, of academics. I don't know if I really buy into that because the whole point of academic research and scientific research is to, uh, you know, increase the general knowledge of society and it has to be usable at some point by by layman. Yeah, but you just can't feed the whole paper in to the little FK score machine, right? Because like there's only so many ways you can say like binary logistic regression, right? Like you just just the abstract then. Just the abstract. Abstract. Okay, I'm with you on abstract. I'm with you on abstract. I can get behind that. You know, it's interesting because well, first off, there's the whole publish or perish thing about academia where you have to write tons of articles to get uh, promotions and tenure and salary increases. There's kind of um, an inefficient market of academic research. So people will publish for other reasons than just increasing the knowledge like of society. quantity, not quality, right? Yeah. Like it, it's, it, you know, I listened to our own pod, like I listened to the Luis Von on episode on No Stupid Questions after it was produced. I mean, I wanted to see how it turned out. I obviously had been part of the conversation itself. And when he said that he thought that academic publishing disincentivized quality in part because of what you just said, James, right? Like, you know, how many articles did you publish? Um, I really, I thought to myself, I need to go home because uh, I was on a walk and like write in my journal about that and not forget that because I... I think he's right. It's a really profound statement. It would take a lot of restructuring. Um, and even myself, I look at my own Vita, and this is just a guilty admission. I don't feel proud of this. And I think like, oh, what happened to me in 2016? Like I only published like three articles and and that's the wrong way to think about it. You know, Stephen, just for you, I went to jstore.com and I searched on golf. And the first article that came up for me was three-dimensional motion analysis and inverse dynamic modeling of the human golf swing. Oh, yeah, that's a great paper. Was it riveting? <laughs> it was fascinating. The, the title alone has an FK score of like 27. <laughs> so, and then, but, but you know, then the, the final thing I'll say, the one interesting thing I think about academic research is that it's the uh, inspiration, the, the way academics are ranked according to academic research was the inspiration for the Google search algorithm, of course. Like, you, you know, your, your paper is ranked higher if other highly ranked papers cite it. And that's how Google uh, came, that's how Larry Page came up with the algorithm and patented his own, his own version of it. What do you think about that, James? How, like, what, do you think that's good? Can you think of a better way to do it? No, I mean, there's, there's obviously been modifications. And, he, and the funny thing is Larry Page is not the first person to come up with the idea. There was an employee of a, a small newspaper called the Wall Street Journal that also came up with this idea and, and simultaneously to Larry Page, he wanted to implement this as a search engine for the Wall Street Journal or for Dow Jones. And they said no. So he quit Dow Jones, he moved to China, and he started Baidu. So the same concept of mm, using the, okay this then. algorithm that's used in academic research to rank academic, you know, to write, rank academics is used by both Google and Baidu. And I do think it's a good way to do it as opposed to just looking for um 
you know, word count in a page, which is what was done before. Huh, I didn't know that. Okay, I was just wondering whether you were going to see some flaw in the system, right? That, like, because it does become a little bit of a self-fulfilling, well, not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but like a, like, there's sort of like, once you start getting cited, then like, you're going to get cited more. It, it certainly could leave like, you know, academic orphans out in the cold. But in Google search, even if something is incorrectly cited more, it's still culturally relevant, the more it's mm. mentioned. So it's, it's for good or for bad, right? It'll keep getting more airtime. So I, I, even though we've spent some time on this question, I want to ask about the others. I am curious about this article you cite, Angela, you cited uh, Dean uh, Keith Simonton's Equal Odds Rule paper, which is about create, uh, creativity, having original ideas. And I like a lot of his books on creativity and, and he has a book, Geniuses. And uh, I didn't read the paper. What, what did he determine about creative productivity? So Dean Keith Simonton is one of the most prolific academics I know of, and he um, is really interested in outliers and what makes them special. And in particular, when he talked about creativity um, in his past work, he said that there's the equal odds rule, which is um, a little non-intuitive. It's the, it's the idea that um, any given idea has roughly equal odds of being a good idea. And therefore, uh, kind of in contrast to what we were just saying, like you really want quantity, right? Like if you want to be creative, instead of trying to come up with like two really great ideas, just come up with a hundred ideas and then, you know, more likely than not, some of them will be creative. Um, and if you then extend that to like, well, what would the advice be? Um, the advice would be to like have more and more material to work with, right? Like more and more ideas that you can associate with each other in different combinations. And, you know, if odds are equal, the more the better. So the interesting thing here is if he looked at like the advertising industry, they've used that concept since the 1960s that, if you're having trouble coming up with 10 ideas, come up with 50 ideas. Mm. So, uh, uh, and uh, George uh, Lewis, a big ad executive, has written a bunch of books, has, has written about that. But this does lead to the next question on from No Stupid Questions, episode four. Does all creativity come from pain? Did did you ask me that, um, Stephen? I think no, that I was, must have that asked was you that. your question about sublimation. Oh, I was like, well, that's such a good question, but it's not sounding... For yeah, I did ask that question. So, Angela, you should describe the psychological concept of sublimation. So the idea that I was uh, curious about, James, was um, whether Stephen, as somebody who's creative, um, would resonate with the following account of creative work, which is that it's a defense mechanism, like a psychological defense mechanism against pain. And this is an idea that um, was, um, you know, part of the Freudian idea that we have defense mechanisms against, you know, distress and inner conflict, and they can be good defense mechanisms, healthy defense mechanisms, and they can be unhealthy. Uh, and sublimation is the idea of taking pain, you know, you, you know, went through a divorce or, you know, you lost somebody you loved and then turning that into art, into creative work. And um, the quote I like, which is definitely not Freud, I think it's Carrie Fisher, um, <laughs> take your broken heart and turn it into art. So that was, that was the question that I um, was curious what Stephen would say. It's interesting because there's certainly creatives who, on the surface, you can't tell if they've been through pain or not, or their or their biography might not be a classic biography of suffering you know, and su yeah suffering. Oh, I've survived this, survived that. They might 
you know, like for instance, you know, uh, you, you guys, you mentioned, uh, uh, Freud's study of Leonardo da Vinci and argues that he has repressed homosexual desires and that drove his creativity. Were they very repressed? I don't know. So I haven't, I haven't read Freud's work, but no, uh, Leonardo's, I mean, were his, were his homosexual. I think, I think Stephen, you're saying that they were expressed. Yeah, and not, I thought yeah. so. Weren't they? Yeah. Am I wrong? I'm not that? a Leonardo guy. I don't know. All right. So, so my, my question is, does it, re, what do you think? Does it really all have to come from pain? No. And I don't think, uh, I mean, Angie knows, uh, Keith, Dean Keith Simonton's work better than I do. We did speak with him for this series we did on creativity. Um, I don't think he would argue. So, so first of all, there was, um, a really interesting discussion within this is about the difference between creative genius and just being really good at being creative. So, you know, I think genius is wildly misunderstood a lot. Um, and this kind of connects with um, the notion of Anders Ericsson and expert performance and the degree to which an underlying talent or quote genius is at work and how, how much of it is more some drive to create and the ability to work and work and work until you just get really good at something. But the one rather common feature of um, people who turn out to be very creative is having, I can't remember the phrase that Simonton uses, Angie, maybe you remember, but it's something to do with um, basically a defining event in childhood, usually a negative defining event, but it could be like dislocation, the family moves, it could be the death of a parent, it could be a political upheaval in the place where you were born. And what it really is about, I think, was not so much a rupture to the person themselves, because there are a lot of people who have those ruptures in their lives who turn out to be not creative people, who turn out to be not happy people, who turn out to be not productive people. So it's not like that's the hidden fuel. The point was, if you have that kind of dislocating event in your life, what it does is it um, forces you to step outside the kind of normal projected pattern of a normal life and begin to look at the world a little bit differently. And that would be a germ or a, a driver of creativity, the ability to see, oh, you know, this pattern that everybody else sees as unbroken, that I would have seen as unbroken, I've suddenly seen it broken. And now I'm going to be able to entertain five or 10 other possible disruptions that don't exist. And that really is the definition of creativity is being able to envision paths or ideas or patterns that other people aren't even thinking about. So, so that's interesting because that could be, someone could develop that instinct potentially on their own, but perhaps a shortcut is experiencing pain that, that forces you to lose trust in some institution of your childhood. Yeah, I think it's like the reason why we think of being contented as being the opposite of creative. The opposite of creative is not boring. The opposite of creative is being perfectly fine with where you complacent. are. Yeah, complacent yeah. is the better word. Yeah. I mean, I might say more generally that cognitive dissonance, right? Like having um, like two things in your head and they don't, they clash with each other, right? And and um, it's a very uncomfortable state, by the way. We don't like cognitive dissonance. Um, we don't like being confused, but it does make you pay attention and then question assumptions. And maybe, you know, whether that comes from trauma or whether it comes from just some other um, you know, like if you move, right? I think many people, for example, if they move from one country to another and, you know, they they see things that are in clash with each other, like values or, or mores, um, I think all of those things can lead uh, not only to creativity, but just generally learning. Yeah, I think one other factor that is super important that you just reminded me of, Angie, is just like having a strong power of observation. 
Mm. Like, I think, I think the three of us have all noticed that the people in the world who do interesting things and noteworthy things are people who pay a lot of attention and who notice things. And I think if you're one of those people, you take it for granted. You think that everybody's always working really hard to observe what's different here, what's interesting here, what's changed, et cetera, et cetera. But you realize that not everybody's like that. A lot of people like, you know, kind of passing through. And so I think having strong powers of observation is key. And I also think that we're not all born with it and that it can be developed. It is a muscle. You have to work on it. Okay, well, I want to know what James thinks of that. And if you agree that the um, person who really lives like the observed life is rare, then like, what are all the other people doing with their attention, right? Or do they just have less of it? Like, you, like, you know, if people are not being as sensitive to what's going on, what, like, are they not thinking about anything? Or are they thinking about something that you're not thinking is interesting? Or do they just not have enough capacity to think? Like, what do, what do you no, think? No, I think it's like what Stephen was saying earlier, the opposite of creativity is contentment, and there's nothing wrong with that. They're content, they're happy. And you know, um, I'll, I'll quote two different people. So Jerry Seinfeld says the difference between a, a comedian and someone else is everyone else will walk into a room and just be fine, and the comedian will walk into the room and notice everything that's wrong with the room. <laughs> like, oh, I'm in this bar mitzvah and they're just serving bacon. Like the comedian <laughs> will notice that. And Angela, this is related to your point about cognitive dissonance, but on a much uh, kind of micro level, another comedian, Louis C.K., has said, if you, if something annoys you three times in one week, if the same thing you think about, oh, that's annoying, and you think about the same thing three times in one week, you should write about it. So it's, again, observing annoyance or something wrong, and that's creating that dissonance, that lack of contentment in both cases, that's creating either micro-creativity or maybe on a bigger Elon Musk scale. Oh, why haven't we put any humans in space since 2011? I'm really annoyed at that. I'm going to make a rocket. And uh, so, so, you know, it works on a macro and a micro scale, that kind of annoyance. And it could either be triggered by some, you know, loss of faith in an institution early on, or maybe it's triggered through by just exercising, you know, some creativity muscle, like how comedians do it. But um, so you guys have each and collectively both. Like, well, anyway, you've interviewed a lot of people. You've talked to a lot of people. Would, would you say in your personal experience, the most creative and productive people, if they really have this uh, dissonance or this kind of like discomfort or the lack of complacency, are they are they happy people in your personal experience? I don't know. Happiness is a happiness is a relative term, but I would say they're probably less content in general. Mm. In general, it's a, that's a blanket statement. So it's just, uh, uh, I know I'm less content in general than most people I know. Are you? Yeah, like on a scale from zero to 10, if 10 is like wildly ecstatic. Well, let me ask you the way that scientists would. On a scale from zero to 10, how satisfied overall are you with your life? You know, taking into account that therapy and anti-anxiety drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, you take into account anything you Probably want. a four. Uh, without oh, wow. them, probably without would have them. been a two. Yeah, interesting. Great. You don't strike me as a four. Well, it's because I take anti-anxiety drugs. Well, yeah, but no, but you're you're coming off as an, a seven. Oh, I like to have I've got my my good friends here. I'm doing a podcast, which I love <laughs> yeah. doing, and we're all being creative. You're gonna go back to negative two after we hang up. So wh when you're in the state of creativity, maybe you're more content. So yeah. you kind of get more of that kind of flow like feeling. Do you feel like you're you're um, dissatisfied, but you're sort of satisfied being dissatisfied? No. 
I think uh, the creativity makes me feel really satisfied by the end of the day. There's also kind of, there's some neuroscience behind this too. So um, right at any given moment during the day, which receptors are firing more? Your dopamine receptors, which is this kind of molecule of more where you need kind of more of something, whether it's creativity or wins or likes or whatever, or serotonin where you have more of this feeling of contentment. Yeah, so, and I think... I would argue, and I don't know, but maybe creatives could be, you know, you can look at at any given point when they're being creative, what's, which neurochemical is triggering more? Mm. Well, I'm not an expert on the neurochemistry of contentment or joy, so I'll, I'll remain silent on that. But uh, yeah, but anyway, I do. See, I the do the benefit of not being as ac- an academic is I could just you say whatever you want. Yeah, I can't sling terms like dopamine and serotonin around casually. Um, but but you were saying that like you you're not sat, satisfied being dissatisfied. You're you're just satisfying. You're just you're just constantly dissatisfied, and then you you get momentarily like some you know like when when I said are you satisfied being dissatisfied? I guess what I meant was like would you change who you are if you could and be a more complacent person, but then probably a less creative person if you could wave a magic wand and do so? Uh, probably, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So let, let me ask you guys this question because so let's say you have a favorite creative activity, whether it's writing or podcasting or you know. Stephen playing golf, golf or golf is not, it's like it is creative. Golf is oh, very creative okay. for, for, for me. Like let's, it's either stand up comedy or whatever. Uh, if I don't do my favorite creative activity for more than two or three days, I'm extremely, extremely unhappy and dissatisfied. It's mm. like, it's like a fix. Mm, Steven, do you feel that way? I do. Um, so I guess, you know, we've talked about this too. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, my work I feel is pretty creative. Um, There's idea generation, there's research, there's interviewing, then there's writing and even writing the head, you know, there are different levels of it there. And on the weeks, um, sometimes with like Freakonomics Radio, for instance, if we've done like during COVID, we just did back to back to back to back to back new episodes that we conceived, reported, mixed and published within the space of four or five days, which we're not built to do. Usually we have like a a six week runway for each show. So we had done like 11 or 12 in a row and it was just seven days a week, all hands on deck the whole time. And it, it was too busy to really reflect, um, about, you know, how does this feel? But then finally we decided that everybody needed a break and we put out a repeat and I expected to feel this surge of renewal and rest and relaxation. And it was exactly the opposite. I was like, where, yeah, where, uh, not only antsy, I felt unfulfilled. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the alter, I'm not saying that the alternate of being so on for so long was good. It was too much, but just like James is saying that there's a level, it's the, um, I guess the words that I think about are not so much satisfaction of, um, well, it is. A, it's a satisfaction with accomplishment mm, and the gratification. Yeah, and to me, the gratification is there was a goal. It may have been amorphous, like I, I want to do. I want to write something about this topic. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. I'm not even going to really be able to control ultimately how good it's going to be, no matter how much effort I put in. Hopefully, it'll work out well. But then, when you see it through, and then when you're in the tunnel, you're just thinking, writing, worrying, da da da. But then when it's out, there is a feeling of gratitude or 
satisfaction that for me is really, really a hard to beat. And like James said, if I don't do it um, for uh, for a time, I just feel kind of adrift. I feel a little bit like purposeless. Mm-hmm. And and I, I and that's one. And I feel it. Feeling purposeless is a terrible thing. And that's why when we have these conversations a lot lately about the economy and the long-term effects of automation and maybe the need for a universal basic income, you know, some people argue that jobs are what give people purpose. I don't really believe that's true because most people don't enjoy their jobs and don't get a great sense of satisfaction out of them. Some do. I think the three of us are lucky enough to say that we do. But for the many people who don't, the question then becomes like, what is the purpose? Where do you where do you get that feeling of satisfaction? Can you replicate that? Um, and that I think is a really hard question to answer. And and what about you, Angela? It's, do you feel if you're not working on your research or writing for you know a certain amount of time, do you start to get antsy? Like oh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last time. Where are those like chemicals? <laughs> more than twenty four hours that I wasn't working on something. But um, but yeah, I, I would say um, like within maybe forty eight hours, I get a little yeah. bit like like it's like an itch. It's like you it just want to you you know you want to go and do something. And and to Stephen's point, um, I do think human beings are wired to be um, purposeful. And and here is the real trick, right? So say AI. And, you know, whatever, you know, leaps forward in technology, make it possible for a lot of us to do less, right? So that we're less needed, right? Because you get a little robot to like schedule your calls and you get like, you know, another robot to read your emails. And so, um, so here's what I would say as a psychologist, I think where people are most gratified is that when they have a purpose, but the purpose is really authentic, like, like, you know, you actually are having an actual benefit on other on other people and and I think it's not going to be that if we have a society where you know robots and AI are doing most things and we're all off like well golfing say Stephen right like even though there's a goal when you're playing a game of golf it's it's not going to be the same kind of gratification um, as doing something that's truly useful for other people. But you know on on that point sometimes I'll write something and I'll put it on Facebook and I can see right away how many people like it and what the engagement is. Sometimes there's an, a reverse correlation between, like, I'll feel really good about a piece of writing, and those almost always are the ones that get the least <laughs> engagement. Mm. And I could come up with like something that's useful, but I don't feel as as artistic or creative. But I know it'll get the likes. You know, it's just designed mm. that way. So it's like almost a different skill to be useful as to be creative. But this does lead into another question I want to explore on, on your episodes. So this is episode three of No Stupid Questions, your podcast. What does it mean to be a hard worker? And this not only overlaps with what we're talking about, but Angela, this overlaps with a lot of your work on grit. Well, Stephen and I are both pretty hard workers, I would say. And, you know, I was asking him how he would rate himself. And, you know, I I think he... uh, you know, was a good illustration of, you know, when he thinks of whether he's a hard worker or not, he, of course, thinks about, like, people he knows, and then that's what we all do, right? If I asked you, James, if you're a hard worker, you'd have to conjure up some images of other people, and then you'd have to rank yourself, like, where where you fall in that spectrum. On a scale from zero to 10, where 10 is the hardest possible, like, where would you say you are? I don't know, but I, what I do know that I can measure is I'm extremely productive. Yeah. So I don't know how hard I work versus 
Steven or someone in an assembly line or whatever, but I know I put out a lot of output. Yeah, you're a 10 on output. I'm a 10 on output. Yeah. So I don't know if that <laughs> yeah. makes me, I try to you're, work. You're not sure as, about the input. but I, Sometimes yeah. I think I'm really lazy actually and not a hard worker, but I always try to be super efficient on the work that I do. Yeah. Um, that's that's key for me. And it took, it was a big challenge to figure that out, including a lot of discussions with Anders Ericsson, who you mentioned earlier. That was a really fascinating episode. What does it mean to be a hard worker? I know we're time constrained, so people are going to have to listen to it. But there is one thing you mentioned in the second part of that episode. The, the second question was, why does happiness start dropping at age 16 and not rise again until our late 40s? It's sort of this U-shaped model of happiness. And there's a section in that question where um, you mentioned the, the three blessings exercise by Martin Seligman, which I thought was so great that I sent it to my kids. So I encourage people to listen to not only all the episodes, but but this episode and, and wait for that one, uh, that point in particular. But uh, uh, I do want to mention before we close some of the other questions here is what is the optimal way to be angry? And my favorite, which I pray to God is true, did COVID-19 kill the handshake? The theory <laughs> is, yes, Angela, you say it's got to be replaced by something. I don't even care if it's replaced by nothing. No more handshakes, no more bro hugs. When I meet a woman, I don't know if it's one cheek or two cheeks, like the kissing, like all of that stuff is gone, gone. now, I hope. and <laughs> I um, was specifically it, advocating against the handshake, but you can take it wherever you want, James. George Washington bowed, by the way. Um, because he was afraid of germs. But and then and then and even related to that question, your question too in that episode was about uncertainty. And you know, Stephen and I have had this ongoing argument about evolutionary psychology. I think there's a lot of that in this particular question. But again, this is the best new podcast out there. No stupid questions. And really, so far, so good. I'll be keeping track and I hope <laughs> you guys come back on again. So far, there have been only fascinating questions. They've been great answers and they've made my life better. Like listening, as opposed to the question of the day, which Stephen and I did, no <laughs> stupid questions actually makes the listeners' lives better. And so it's a great podcast. Really happy, Angela, to have met. I've been excited to meet you ever since I read Grit. And uh, Stephen, as always. I miss you, James. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you in real life. And I will not shake your hand or hug you. No, we'll just. I'll bow. Yeah, we don't even I'll have bow. to do the elbow thing. The elbow thing's stupid. I, don't do that. I'll wave. 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 Waving's great. Yeah. Waving's great. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, one thing is, uh, promise you'll come on again because after another 10 episodes, I'm sure we'll have another conversation like this. And it was great. I learned a lot. Uh, so you guys will both come on again? 100%. Yes, it's a deal. To, James. Thank so you. So no stupid questions, part two. Stay tuned for it. But in the meantime, listen to all the millions of stuff you mentioned in your podcast that we didn't talk about. Go to No Stupid Questions on your podcast provider. And uh, thanks a lot, you guys, for coming on the podcast. Angela Duckworth and Stephen Dubner. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. 